Blog Talk Radio. We're on the air, so hello everybody. Here's a something very Hi. special from Miss Vicky Love. Hello everyone. This poem was written in the 19th century, and it's attributed to two different authors, so I can't tell you when or who wrote this, but it was published first December 23rd, 1823. And um, it's referred to as the night before Christmas or also a visit from St. Nicholas. But no matter which one, we all know it as the night before Christmas. And instead of reading a ghost story, I thought maybe I'd re- uh, read my favorite Christmas poem on Christmas Eve. So here it goes. <clears throat> was the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains oh, for a no long time laughing. Went out on the Okay, I'm not getting these guys. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're tonight's entertainment. Look at my butt! Okay, are we ready? <laughs> this is your fault, Carl. <laughs> it's in the contract. Wait, no, it's not my fault. Dog. It's okay. Let's just go with it. You know what? Okay. I kind of like the idea of Christmas in July. It needs to be cold. Well, look. Okay, shut up. Shut up. <laughs> shut up. Shut. Up. <laughs> shut. Ah. <coughs> Hi everyone, it's Vicky Love here, sci-fi and all that, but it's going to be more than that and less sci-fi this time. We're in the middle of summer, it's hot as F-U-C-K outside, and we started with a Christmas poem, yay. And I <laughs> guess you already know, Stephen's here with us, of course, he's always here with us. Say Hi Stephen. Oh, there's Stephen saying hi. (laughs) And guess what? Frickin' Carl's here. (laughs) How about that? Frickin' Carl. (laughs) Frickin' Carl has returned. Thank you so much for letting me be on, Miss Vicky. (laughs) (laughs) Don't call me Miss Vicky. Oh, shit. I don't (laughs) like that. I I know. I'm well aware. And and Carl is here because well, compared to compared to the screw up we just had, he considered that baby walks compared to what we had to go through about three days ago. Yeah, on Friday right. we, we had right. a show scheduled on on Deviant Legion uh, about Rutger Hauer and uh, uh, Block Talk was just we couldn't even get through the, the phone lines were all done and that sort of thing. And so we canceled. It was a very busy weekend, and 
we were going to reschedule, and uh, Vicky took it upon herself and wonderful uh, 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 decision on her part to do a show tonight. So I'm just joining. For hey, the no first gratuitous bit. bullshit, okay? No, hey, stop, stop. This is my no. show. That's just gratuitous I bullshit. I didn't take it upon myself. I texted you this morning. You said, nope, no show, maybe at the end of the week. Well, I'm on vacation. So Stephen and I decided, what the heck, let's do this show because we want to talk exactly. about Rutger Hauer. And, <laughs> and Rutger is probably upstairs what? laughing at us right now. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. And so, yes, Blogcock was all screwed up on Friday, and that's just the way it is. Lots of things get screwed up in the summertime. But not Apollo 11. Happy 50th anniversary. Going to the moon, what we do. Happy anniversary. So, <laughs> and so, oh, yeah, one more science thing. Tonight and tomorrow night, if you go outside after the sun goes down, but maybe two hours after the sun goes down, you're going to see meteors, showers, and meteors, and showers. No, you're going to see a lot of meteor showers, okay? This is one of the most prolific meteor showers. And so, treat yourself if you can go outside. I mean, come on. It's the only time you can go outside without melting, right? Okay. Well, actually, Vicki, Vicki. Uh, yeah. Instead of meteor showers, I'd like to see some vegetarian showers. <laughs> I had okay. to. I had to go there. Come on. I don't even know what you're talking about. What are you alluding meteor, to? Meteor vegetarian. Meat meat what? eaters and vegetarians. Yeah. Oh, like so that was a pun. That yeah. was a pun. Did you hear it go swish, audience? We're going. (laughs) No, I heard a break. Like a meteor falling from the sky. (laughs) (laughs) You know, all meteors just peter out. (laughs) That was I I could go somewhere with that, but I'm not going to. Well, look, if they didn't peter out, they would be asteroids, and your butt would be hurt. Okay. So let's get with it. (laughs) I'm having fun. But it was uh, Thursday, Vicky, and Carl messaged me with something that said Root Bar Gower. (laughs) He got mutilated by his spell check, and I was like, what the hell? And I was like, Root Bar, that stuff. And then it clicked in my mind. I looked up, and I was like, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, I know. When I first saw it, I was just, well, I was, as my Facebook said, I was just sad. I couldn't even function for a few hours. Happens when somebody dies that I really, really involve in my life. But, you know, the one thing that happens when these people pass away, these famous people who we involve them in our lives, you get to find out things. Like um, he and his wife were married for almost four decades, right? Um, that must be some kind of love right there. 
because just to put up with somebody for a year is, is hard, right? So um, that was a cool thing to find out. And it's, um, it's none of our business what he died of, if we want to know what he died of. I mean, come on. We all know he smoked like a fiend, so who knows? It's just sad that he died, and he worked up until the moment he died. So we have this huge filmography out there. So let's get with it. Let's talk about it. Uh, let's talk about Rutger. Yeah? Instead of smoking like a fiend, can we say smoking like a caper from now on because it fits a bit better? Oh, God. No, I don't want to give Carl that because there are plenty of other people who are dying of cancer. I'm cigarette. By, by, by the way, I'm diseases. down below half a pack a day, just for the record. <laughs> Shit. If I believe that. Uh, they're thirteen dollars a pack. Believe yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> he's on the New York. Uh, he's on the New York, New York uh, cigarette uh, rehab problem, which is like you said, cart uh, pack of cigarettes are thirteen dollars a pack with about two dollar tax. <laughs> yeah, they're more expensive out here, I think. But that's because we're California. Did you see that in the movie No Smoking Sign? It was really silly. <laughs> anyway, the movie's next. Right now we're going to do Rutger Hauer. Okay, um, I'm just going to say that I did know who Rutger Hauer was. I'd seen a, the um, two movies uh, that he had uh, done before, I don't know about other movies, I had seen two movies before Blade Runner that starred Rutger Hauer, and one of them was um, A Soldier of Orange, and uh, Paul, Paul Burhauen was um, the, the writer, well, co-writer, and um, the movie won a couple of awards, and it was also received, it won a Golden Globe for Best Foreign Language Film in 1980, and then it also was voted Second Best Dutch Film of the 20th Century. Just let that sink in. Second Best Dutch Film of the 20th uh, Century. And it's banned in its home country. Yes. Well, that's because it talks about, um, well, it, it you know, it's about the truth of what happened when the Germans came in and World War II was beginning and all the things that happened and how the Dutch just kind of laid over, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a very good, good film. based the script on his memories of what he saw when the Germans come in and took over when he was a kid. Right. Right, and Rutger Hauer is really the star of the um, the movie. There, there, he shares the billing with four other actors, but in the end, it's his story, the story of Eric, that makes it all the way through the whole film. And so, um, yes, I saw that before I saw him in Blade Runner. And so... My whole point is he had a really good career before Blade Runner, and then Ridley Scott brought him over for Blade Runner Mm -hmm. and then International Star. 
What about you guys? Well, if you haven't seen any of his uh, four Verhoeven films, you need to. Turkish Delight, Soldier of Orange, uh, Fire and Hot Steel. I hope that's the right title. And Fetters are all magnificent movies. Oh, yeah. It's Flesh and Blood. Flesh Flesh and and Blood blood is the movie. Yeah, they're they're all good. I want to just mention, as far as his early work, um, he started uh, in TV with a very, very successful um, Dutch uh, TV series called Forest, which, uh, where he met Paul Verhoeven, uh, and then Turkish Delight. But the first movie I ever saw him in, I saw on HBO. And it's a film called The Wilby Conspiracy. And uh, it's uh, he has a small part, not a large part, but it's uh, Cindy Poitier and uh, Nicole Williamson uh, teaming up uh, in South Africa during apartheid. And uh, um, Rutger Hauer is one of the mean policemen in it. So uh, uh, that's the first thing I ever saw him in, to be honest. Rutger Hauer in a uniform. Yes. Yes. Well, Absolutely. I was about ten or twelve, so the first thing I saw him in was Blade Runner, of course. Yeah, like most people, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, he is Dutch. He did start in his native country or in the Norwegian area, that whole area. So, yeah. I mean, of course, of course, he did a lot of stage acting and a lot of other things before Ridley Scott rightly, rightly. Um, put him in as Roy Batty. Oh, my gosh. And I still, to this day, think that it was Roy's story. It's not Deckard's story. It's Roy's story. Blade Runner, right. the film, not the book, not the not the novel. Yeah. Uh, um, do Android Dream of Electric Sheep? No. But the the film, I think, is Roy's story. Because once he comes on... There's nobody else. Even Harrison Ford knew it. Yeah. What do you guys think? And you might be happy, Vicky and Carl, or agree that on most of the art film forums and film forums, it seems like it's a, a Soldier of Orange is the one that's rising to the top. Good. Right. Good. I'm glad. Oh. That we need to see, right, Carl? Right. Now, there's another one, too, we forgot that Verhoeven directed, and that's Katie Tipple. Uh, and, and Rucker has the second lead in that one. Uh, got, and that comes from... You, you might that, be shocked, that, Carl, but I got that on one of my Mill Creek uh, drive-in exploitation sets. Mm-hmm. It's under its American title, which is probably why it didn't get much recreation. And it was called Diary of a Prostitute over here. <laughs> yep. Diary. Well, basically, what it's about. <laughs> if you watch yeah, the movie, you know. it's an appropriate title, but it wouldn't sell what it is. <laughs> no. Because if you if you think it's a uh, it's exploitation, not quite. No. Not quite. Well, then what is it? I don't know. It's, I've never uh, seen it. So. It's about it's a drama. Katie Tipple, 
who is forced into that life by her mother because her sister, who her mother also forced into that life, has gotten sick and is dying because of it, and her father has been in an accident. So her mother is forcing her to take care of the family. And it's basically about how she breaks all of her bonds to become a Katie Tipple, a lady. Right. It's almost like My Fair Lady in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's almost like My Fair Lady in, in some aspects. Pygmalion. Hmm. But real life. Well, well, that's cool. That's good. Yeah. Then the good title good. won't um, put, you know, the title could put people off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's something that uh, at least people will know now. So check it out. At least I will. And that's really great. Well, I think it's on Netflix or Amazon as Katie Temple. Ah, yeah, you could check one of those, too. I mean, Amazon's got a deep, um, deep catalog, but sometimes you have to pay for it, even if you're a Prime subscriber. Yeah. And to me, the thing about Roy Blatty is the first time you watch Blade Runner, he is the bad guy. Right, the first time. Then you watch it the second time, knowing what he's after, and then you feel sorry for him the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you you know what? When I saw that, I saw that in New York City when I was here in the 80s. And and the, the audience was confused, but... At that end, with that speech, you could see people physically react to that speech and, and have their, their, their minds changed about this character. Uh, I remember overhearing a couple of, of conversations from people there, and, and that's how much power he had as an actor to change people's minds well, with one speech. Yeah, but here's the deal. He believed in it. The thing is, the reason why that speech um, stands out among so many other speeches, great speeches in film, is not just that he believed it. He wrote it. He took the words that he had, and he rewrote the the lines, and he came up Mm -hmm. with that. And he said it with so much power that Ridley Scott still to this day remarks on it and says, wow, can't believe that he came up with something like that and that's why it's in the film because how dare you if you know anything about filming or um the writers especially these days you can't change a word if it has a the and you forget to say the you're in trouble you got to say it again but rutger hauer rewrote those words they're very convoluted, plotting-type words, trying to give weight to what was happening. So he went home and he rewrote them, memorized his lines, and he said it on camera. Can you imagine what he was thinking? As he was doing that line right before, I mean, doing the scene, right, he's like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to say my lines. And he does it, and it is just like the best thing ever in film. (laughs) 
That's the kind of and power. And the look on has. Harrison Ford's face is uh, Rutgers saying to saying it to right. Him. For once, uh, Harrison Ford had actual emotion cross over his face, and he did some real acting. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, Harrison. <laughs> I, and don't I'm forget, a huge there's fan. another line in that movie that Rutgers <laughs> says that the AIDS movement and protesters took as their mantra. Yeah. I want more oh light, fucker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who? Who out there ever has? Facing death, who out there ever hasn't said those words? Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And the way he says it, the way he, and you know, back then in the 80s, 82, there's not a lot of fucker out there on film. (laughs) And so when he just says it, the way he says it, I want more life, fucker. Oh my God. For me, that was like, oh, he said it. <laughs> he said my word. Um, <laughs> yeah, you do have just, a copyright on that word, don't you, Vicky? Yeah. <laughs> I think I do. <laughs> and plus, uh, I say they didn't go into it in the movie. Tell me if they go into the book. But I think the reason they gave the replicants the four life lifespans is that the humans were jealous of how much more of a perfect human that the replicants were than humans. Right. 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 You know, I've always thought that in um, Battlestar Galactica, the reboot, that um, the showrunners took their cues on why the... um, what the Cylons wanted and why they were so angry from Blade Runner. Because being a slave and also being um, having an off switch or a expiration date, that makes you so much less than anything. Anything. And so... Again, again, the replicants, Roy Batty, leading them. It's still um, something that uh, we see weaving through. Even that, that show that I was watching, Another Life, the AI on that is scared to die. He doesn't want yeah. to die. Well, do you remember what was the most important thing in the world to the replicants in the in the world of Blade Runner? Well, a couple of things: their pictures, yeah, their, their memories. Pic- yeah, memory. Yeah. Because if you know Even you're only going to live uh, four years, every memory you make is going to be like solid gold. Right. And those friends. Oh, and here's those, something those... creepy. Uh, what yeah. year? Did Ray Blatty die in? Oh, 2019. no, what year? Yeah. Really? Ray Blatty lived about four months longer than Rutger did. That's fucking insane. 
That's insane. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even read that. I guess I didn't yeah. want to. I didn't try to find that out. Are you kidding? 2019? No, no we're not kidding. We're not kidding. No. Not kidding. Wow. See how weird life is? That's just yep. weird. I happen to and agree with you. On. God, I wish Lady Hawk was a better film than it was. Well, there's there's parts of it that are not so good, and then there are parts of it that are really good. You have to you know, forgive I will it say for this, the, Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm so, well, well, I was going to say the this. CGI. You got to mm-hmm. forgive them for, you know, that... That kind of stuff. But there's a lot of people that contacted me uh, and said, you got to mention Lady Hawk. you got to mention, there's a lot of love for that movie. And whether the movie is good or bad, it certainly has worked its way into uh, the, the cultural zeitgeist uh, of that period. And people love it. And, of course, Rutger Hauer is part of that being in that film. And he has a wonderful part in that film. There's no question. Well, I don't think he has a part in that film. He's the male lead in that film. Well, well, okay, yeah, he's the male lead, no, but he Matthew has a great... You just ask is. any woman, any woman my age, 10 years younger than me, a little bit older than me, and and they'll say, what the fuck are you saying? He starred in that movie. He was that Black Knight. Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, it was, it, you know, if you take a look at everything, they all say Matthew Broderick. I'm just saying. Well, nobody remembers Matthew Broderick. Not in that. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I'm not disagreeing with that fact. I okay? mean, that's Ferris Bueller, uh, okay? Do you remember okay. the book series that uh, basically Lady Hawk stole from? Uh, Finier the Grey Mouser or something like that. So it was a not particularly, not really. I know of it, but that's about it. Yeah, Stephen. That's about but it. The problem is, is that Rutger Hauer and Michelle Pfeiffer Pfeiffer were so strong as their two characters that the main lead. Matthew Broderick was overshadowed and reduced to a second bit player in his own starring role. <laughs> well, that's that's how good of an actor he is. That's how yeah. how how good of a role it was. You know, I wasn't joking at the beginning. I said he had a great part, and he's shown in that part, and he overshadowed the lead. There you go. Well, and it had a great yeah. villain too. Yes, right. He had a great villain too. But for, I mean, Matthew Broderick was, he played the Joker. And not a good Joker like um, Batman's Joker. He played the Jester. He played such a a simpleton that even when, as he was rising up in his craft, he still, his, his part was written badly. I don't know why, but, you know, that's something... I guess for other people to know. 
Yeah. And so what even Matthew would okay. say that he didn't have the gravitas to do the role at the time. Well, he needed he needed to do um, Ferris Bueller. Is what he needed to do. And so that that I mean, this was kind of a serious movie. There was nothing really slapsticky funny about this movie. There was nothing really sarcastic about this movie. It was about these two lovers who were cursed and they could only see each other twice a day for a moment just as the sun went down or the sun went up. And so here they are. They love each other but they can't. And then she turns into a hawk. And so it's this weird... It's this this drama, and then you stick this jester in there. It was just that was just done badly, not any of the actors' faults, I guess. Oh, and you forget, Blade Runner wasn't his first U.S. role. What was? Before I say the movie, I'd like to tell my favorite story. There's a scene in this movie where the two leads are looking at Rutger as a terrorist, holding a tiny baby with the gun on it and just cooing. And the lead of it turned over to his co-star and said, I just lost the movie to this man. (laughs) And the lead was Sylvester Stallone talking to Billy Dee Williams about Rutger Hauer and Nighthawks. Yeah. That's another one. He takes the movie. (laughs) Right. Right. I remember that one. Oh, my gosh. I kind of felt sorry for Stallone. He I did. did. <laughs> well, don't, Come because on. guess what? Guess what? Stallone is trying what? to develop that into a TV series. Well, whatever. If it happens, it happens. He'll get money. That's but he has a beautiful intro scene in there, the one where he's seducing the girl at the perfume counter when he's slipping the bomb un- right next to her counter where no one can see it. Right. <laughs> he is such a great villain in that movie. Yeah. Right. And and, and it's all about it's all about his uh um you know, drawing the the, the audience in and, 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 and his gravitas. And, and and that just you you can't keep your eyes off of them. Seriously. No, you can't. Because look at I mean, first off he has that look. He has that beautiful, just white silver hair, right? This is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then he has those piercing blue eyes. He doesn't have like the gray blue eyes or those dark blue eyes. He has those bright blue eyes that just kinda like pierce through their ice blue eyes so he's got the Mm -hmm. hair and he's got the flawless beautiful white dutch skin right the norwegian look and he's just and he's he's big and he's got those big shoulders and he's got those beautiful arms and he has that walk and that not that stallone swagger but he has this powerful i'm a man i'm really you know just in i don't know he just had it. He had it. He had that quality. So, so Becky, do you need a towel to, to wipe off the drool? 
Not my forehead sweating though. <laughs> and that baby, that baby was crying for thirty minutes. His mother couldn't even stop it from crying. But then Rutger picked up the baby. Within five seconds, that baby was just cooing on his arms. Everything. <laughs> oh yeah, you know he. Um, uh, it's like that um, that video that I put on my Facebook page. He loved deeply. He loved nature and he loved animals. That that tribute to the whales and the global warming and what the hell are our humans doing, that just brought tears to my eyes. And then my mom on her site uh, found that he went to these horse rescue places and he loved horses. I mean, he was a horse uh, horseman. And um, he would contribute to their funds and go and see the, just go see the animals. Not go see people, but go see the animals. Such a, mm-hmm. such a human. Bigger and than the life. one that's over is 1983's The Osterman Weekend. That one is a hot mess. That's all you could say about it. Okay, uh, we need to go back one, actually, because... The one he did before the Osterman weekend is one of my uh, uh, hidden gems. Okay. Of, 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 and it's called Eureka. Okay. That and came it's directed after by Nicholas Uh No, I got I got it as 1983. I got it here. I got okay. it here on Wikipedia. 1983, the Osterman weekend. And I was going to move on to Breed Apart and then Eureka. Oh, where we got it. Well, actually, IMDb I, I, I has has Eureka beforehand, so let me just go under Eureka very briefly. Okay. Okay. So, uh, it stars Gene Hackman. It's about a gold prospector in Alaska who becomes very rich, and uh, uh, Rutger Hauer plays uh, this character, this French character, Claude Mayol, and he is one of the uh, his. Um, He's Gene Hackman's rival, and it, and they have some great scenes together. It's a very odd film, uh, you know, really strange cast. Uh, Joe Spinell's in this movie, by the way, um, and uh, but it's a it's a great little film, uh, and I do recommend it. So there, I just wanted to talk about Eureka real quick. And before that was. Uh... A breed apart because it's odd because it's one of the few pro-ecology, like you said, with all the whales and stuff, Vicky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was environmentalist. He plays a guy who climbs mountains and who ends up being hired to take eagles' eggs from the nest. And he ends up, after he meets this woman, protecting the eagles' egg from that guy. Yeah. That's um, if you watch that that film that he produced and starred in about the whale, um, you see him take on the persona of a of a whaler in the eyes of the whale, and but then going back to the sympathetic environmentalist human being, it's just it's wonderful. So mm-hmm. I I'm certain he chose roles like that. Because of his his um, real life involvement 
You've seen a Breeder Park crawl? I think you have. I have. It's been a long time, though. Yeah, it's an odd it's little movie. <laughs> been a long Go ahead, time. you guys. Yeah, that was okay. weird, huh? And uh, in 1986, after Flesh and we talked about, we have one of the best gay-themed horror films that doesn't that isn't overtly gay ever. You know which one I'm talking about, Carl? Yes, I do. The that would be the Hitcher. Yep, which was you really to... scary. Oh God, yeah. Which was John really Ryder. scary. Yeah, I, I love the name, John Ryder. I mean, that whole relationship between him and C. Thomas's Hal character is so gay-tinged that it's almost overt. Yeah. But I don't know anyone who doesn't know that. Do you, Vicky? No. I, well, I've never talked to anyone about it before, really. What did you think of it? Well, Rutgers the, the relationship or the... Um, Just Rutgers Well, I think... Oh, in the Hitcher? Oh, my God. You know, I just thought, what the fuck? I would never pick up that guy. Look at him. <laughs> just look at him. And I'm just, I don't know. I was scared from the moment I, the movie started. I think I was just scared from the moment I bought my ticket. Because I knew already that Rutger Haller had some kind of power over me. As an audience member. He just already had a power over me. And so seeing him as this mysterious bad guy. And then seeing that he really is the bad guy you think he is. That just sent me over. I didn't watch that movie for a long time after the first time. And how, yeah, he was and how easy Good would it have guy. been, guys, for him to have gone over the top with it? Well, not until later years did he ever really start going over the top, do you think? I think he was such a good actor. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. I think he knew. Yeah, I think he knew that if he went over the top, that he would make it into a farce. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, he, there's almost he really no violence in the movie. No, yeah. that's what's the scary part. And if you I know that once... Jennifer Lason, Jason Lee's death in the Hitcher is always put in the ten nastiest deaths in of the 80s horror films. And right. yes, it is. But what do you see? Your imagination. Yeah. Which is the scariest thing, except for the millennials, the younger millennials and this new Gen X. They don't have any imagination, so that movie wouldn't scare them at all. They wouldn't know what they were seeing. <laughs> they got that crappy remake with Sean Bean, and I like Sean Bean. But I know. No. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, but The Hitcher is, um, it's more a psychological thriller 
than, you know, a jump out scare movie, which is, of course, scarier. Yeah. You know, it's mm-hmm. not the Texas Chainsaw. I thought I was going to go in and see Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's what I thought I was going to see. I thought I was going to see this hitchhiker who's Rutger Hauer, and he's going to have a big knife, and he's going to be stabbing people all over the the dark desert road. That's what I thought I was going to see. But that's not what I saw, which scared me even more. Yeah, the writer based it on... Uh... A, a core a, a line from uh, Jim Morrison's writers in, writer in the rain. No writer on the road. Is that it, Carl? The door song. Uh, uh, oh, you're talking about um, um, writers on the storm. Uh, yeah, writers on the, st- on the storm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's a killer on the road. His brain is squirming yeah. like a toad. Yeah, that I knew that back then, and that song always, always brings up the Rutger Hauer in the backseat picture. <laughs> yeah, that's and um. Next one, I don't even know what to think of the title of this. It's called "87's oh, Wanted Dead or Alive." We'll get into that at the end of the show when I play an interview about Rutger Hauer with uh, Gary Sherman. And I'll send the interview to you, Carl, so you can listen to it. Okay, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, because I'll I'll need to get off here in in about 20 minutes or so. And now we're at The Legend of the Holy Drinker? What the hell? Oh, no, 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 no. Got to mention this one. Got to mention this one. And got to mention Escape from Sobibor. Escape from Sobibor is a wonderful film. Uh, stars Alan Arkin. And Rutger Hauer uh, has a supporting role as as also a fellow prisoner. And they escape from this uh, Jewish concentration camp. Right. And it's, it's right. really, really, really good. Um, That's uh, 1987. So- yeah, that was right. an HBO movie back when HBO was yeah. making great movies. Movies, yeah. When, um, yeah. But the legend of the Holy Drinker is uh, is uh, Armando Omi, uh, Italian uh, director, and probably best known uh, for uh, let's see, The Tree of the Wooden Clogs is, is his most famous film. But yeah. Omi is a very fine Italian director, uh, and this is about a homeless man who's given 200 francs uh, 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 to give to uh, uh, this saint, and he has to make the trek, and of course he wants to spend the money on himself, and, and he finds himself in God, and Omi's a very religious uh, uh, director and screenwriter, so, but it's a, it's, a, it's a great movie if you're in the mood for it. So that's and, what that yeah, is. Go ahead, Vicky. Oh no, I've just seen it. I just I've just I watched it long yeah. time ago. And now we're going to a nineteen eighty nine movie and one of Carl's underrated picks. I love it too. In well, nineteen eighty nine 
if you want to mention okay, Zato Ichi to us American fans, well, we didn't know what the hell that was, Carl. I did. I was well aware of Zato Ichi at this point. Uh, yeah. uh, but then again, remember, this was the... Uh, this was later 80s that I had seen so many Hong Kong films at the Delancey and, and, and Japanese yeah. films that well, I I'm knew who Satoichi was. about basic above-grounders. No. No, you probably wouldn't know. Satoichi yeah. is a uh, Japanese uh, character who is a blind uh, samurai who goes around righting the wrongs of life. And everybody thinks that they can mess with him. And guess what? They can't. And so they made this American remake of Satyoshi. Uh, right. Based on the first two films. And mm-hmm. they cast Rutger Hauer in the role. And it's fucking brilliant. He's <laughs> so good. Blind Fury. And he's perfect. Yes, it's really, really good. And if you watch it, okay, if you watch it, you will see all kinds of people, actors that you know now, as in who was in this one and this movie and that movie and that TV show. And so it's got a cast of all kinds of people that you will know. Well, well, let's just go through that very quickly, okay? Terry O'Quinn. Right. Okay. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Okay. Brandon Call, Nick Cassavetes, Rick Overton. I'm friends with Rick. Randall Tex Cobb, Meg Foster. Talk about a match with blue eyes with Rutger Hauer. They yeah. have a scene together. It's like they're gods. I know. It's like, yeah. like, where did you guys come from? Please don't have babies, you know? Can't even <laughs> and Carl, you're forgetting the guy who originally produced, got got the idea and sent it to the American studios, and they decided he wasn't good enough for the role, so they just cast him as a random ninja in the movie. And who would that be? Chiba? Joe Kasugi. Oh, Kasugi. <laughs> Kasugi. Okay, show Kasugi. Yeah, this is another one of those projects he got screwed at, screwed out of. Oh, Damn. Yeah, well, he's called the assassin, so he's, at least he got the cool name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Blind Fury is, is is one of the gems, and I don't consider yes. it a hidden gem at all. It's one of my favorite of his films, top three of his films. I love Blind Fury. Right, yeah. and a lot of people, a lot of people love this movie. It's um, it's not an unknown film. No, not at all. I mean, for heaven's sake, my mom even knows it. So come on. Yeah. She, well, she loves she loves Rutger Hauer, but yeah, she she loves the film too. And now so, I got about... Yeah. Yeah, she can't hear you. She's watching <laughs> baseball. These are my three hidden gems, and ironically, they're all sci-fi movies. Yay! And it's nineteen eighty nine, which is one of our favorite director is David Twohey. Yeah. And in every other country but America, it was called Salute of the Juggers. 
But in America, it was called The Blood of Heroes. Right. And I love this freaking movie. It's I agree. Good. But I Kalu, agree. The Joker's Cut is a better, better movie. The what? What did you say? Kalu, the Joker's Cut. Oh, oh, okay. Well, before it gets, goes to America, the American films always get cut up. I'm not talking about American-made, which they do too, but if they're out in other places and then they come to America, they're always cut up, chopped and chopped. And I have to say, I love Joan Chen, okay? I've always loved her. Um, if you don't know who I'm talking about, Twin Peaks, um, the first series. Um, just I I love her face. She has a beautiful face, beautiful beautiful face. So anyway, I do love that movie. And it's about and else, uh, a bizarre traveling sport in America. That well around the world, where they travel from town to town doing this thing called I forget what the sport's called, but they've actually made it into a real sport now. <laughs> And it is an amazing, fun little movie. Next is one for HBO, and it was called, it depends on, if you see it on HBO back then, it was called Deadlock. But if you see it on VHS, it was called Wedlock. Which is kind of weird. That's the one with the, uh, the neck braces that explode. Yeah. What it is, Vicky, it's set in a future where they're in a prison where there are no bars. It's like half of the prisoners are female, half are male, and you are married to one of the females and males, but they don't tell you which one that you're hooked up to. And if you get over 200 feet away from your partner, your neck bases both blow up. Oh, nice. So it's I wonder why I've never seen that. Amy Rogers and Rutger Hauer, oh, and they escape the prison, and they're trying to get somewhere to get to get the collars off and get some money that was stolen from Rutger when he was framed and put into prison. You like B-movie sci-fi action? You will love this, won't you, Carl? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's a blast, and yes, yeah. I'm slightly intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I it's a 1991 movie. I, now I know why I didn't see it. I was pregnant. <laughs> so it was on HBO. <gasps> um, I that was my my tough pregnancy. I just really didn't. I don't remember much. <laughs> I might have and even next seen it one, for all I got I know. a funny story that I told Carl for a second. Well, Vicky came to me about two months ago and said to me, "Wow, there's this new movie that had Rutger Hauer in it, and it was a sci-fi film, and I loved it. I've never heard of it before." I'm like, "Wow, <laughs> what is it?" And she said, "Split second." And I'm like, "You haven't seen that before?" <laughs> seriously? Yeah, seriously. Oh, it's great, Phil. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, really? you know, what can I say? <laughs> There's um, moments in my life that that I lived a different life. <laughs> and, and can I just say also, as far as split second, it has the great Michael J. Pollard in it. And, and he's wonderful. Right. That's the first movie I've seen Pete Postlewaite be a badass in. Oh, oh God, yeah. God, I love uh, Pete Postlewaite. You know, I think I was flipping through movies when I saw Pete Postlewaite, and I stopped because of Pete Postlewaite, and that's why I watched that movie. Mm-hmm. It's because if I see Pete Postlewaite in a movie, I know that I'm going to want to watch every scene he's in. And so I kept watching it. And Rutger Hauer's in it, and so I'm hooked. I sit down, I'm watching. I mean, really watching now. And that's... (laughs) So, I I need to say one other thing. I need to say one other thing, because we're talking about Pete Possilwaite in this movie. Do you know who played his toady? Who? Ian fucking Dury played J.J. Oh, nice. (laughs) So and I love I'm watching this. Trouble. Okay, uh, hold on. Let me finish. Let me finish. So I'm a huge Ian Dury fan. He's a musician. And I'm watching this movie not knowing anything, right? I think I saw it on HBO or something like that. And then it's like, Ian Dury shows up. I was like, holy fuck! Yeah, yeah. Great film. There you go. I love how at the first of it, you think you're watching some kind of evil satanic cult movie. Mm-hmm. And then it really gets crazy. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's pretty nutty. And then it comes an alien movie, and you're like, what? <laughs> and I love so, the so guys, I, I need ones. to go off that here was... real quick. Go ahead. And, and I just want to mention one other film, if I can. Well, I wanted to mention something with you on the air. Okay, so okay, go, go ahead. ahead. Let's do that. Well, you could do your film, and then we could leave No, no, mine, no. Okay? You go first. It's your show. No, 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 go no. First. No, I would rather you leave on mine than... Ah, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay, got it. Okay. So there. So I happen to catch <laughs> this on HBO, and it's and it's my hidden gem. And it's a film. <clears throat> Hold on, let me get to it here. I know it is Wilder. Okay, but but the VHS title of it is called Slow Burn, and it's a murder mystery. Uh, Rutger plays the main character, who is Doctor Sam Charney, and his wife is killed, and uh, a policewoman played by Pam Greer. Uh, you know, starts investigating, and he is the the main uh, uh, suspect, of course. And of course, during the course of the movie, you find out he's not the murderer, and they team up and find. But it's the interplay between the two of them that just make it. And there's this one scene, Vicky, where he's he's coming out of the the shower, starting to wrap a towel around him. And and Pam Greer is right there, looking at him, and he sort of looks up, and uh, 
the line was supposed to be yeah. uh, the line was supposed to be pretty impressive for a white guy, right? That yeah. she's supposed to say. She looks at it like, eh, somewhat impressive. And the look on record how her face, and then they start riffing. Like you're you're not impressed. <laughs> it's funny as hell. And they have a great chemistry, and it's a lot of fun. And, and well, so, yeah, that's one I would recommend called Slow Burn or Wilder, okay, which is her her uh, character name. So there you go. Well, um, you know, Rutger Hauer has a huge filmography, and it, you can always find it on the Internet, on, uh, you know, various sites and everything. And these later, di- later years as, um, you know – I'm feeling it myself. As I get older, I slow down. I need a nap here and there, right? And so Rutger was um, older than me. And so in the 20 teens, he started doing a lot of television. But he's done television his entire career. And one of my favorite, favorite appearances of um, Rutger's was in one of my favorite sci-fi shows called the Lex, and uh, he played uh, this character named Bog, and uh, he's actually going to try to eat. Um, he's 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 from a group of people that are cannibals, and so anyway, Lex is a very sexy, weird, irreverent show, and it was really great to see Rutger on there just letting himself go. I mean, at one point he has this ponytail at the top of his head with all that beautiful hair of his just cascading down. He's just, and he's just crazy as hell. And he gets his nose broken and uh, in a in a fight and it's just he's he's just really wonderful. And Carl, you ought to watch Lex. You no. really ought to try it now. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Lex no. is great. I still don't even know. You know, Carl says he's weird and he's strange and all this stuff, but he won't even watch Lex. It's like I have watched Lex. You have made once. me watch that piece of once. Once. <laughs> You're forgetting once. the third part. He's weird and thing like that. But he's also a yes. snob, and when he gets in one of his snobbish news, that's the right. straightest I've ever seen him walk. Because of the <laughs> stick up his ass. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because, you know what, this this is a gem. You talk about your favorite Rutger Hauer, and everyone has their favorites, and I'm going to agree with this one and this one and this one, of course, and everything. But to watch him guest star on this quirky Canadian show that he could just let himself go and be this wacky kind of evil insane dude and be laughing the whole time with a couple of really gorgeous people well there were a lot of gorgeous people in that show um it's a it's a screen gem it's a it's a moment that is so beautiful that I don't understand why Carl won't even give it a try. But nonetheless, Lex, 
not everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> but yeah, that's for, for those sure. Of you, those of you out there that that like different and strange and something you can never predict, you ought to try Lex. Well, actually, it would be perfect for people who like hobo with a shotgun. Why? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not fond of that movie either with him, unfortunately. Um, Well, there's a couple of them that are really, you know, just off. You know, wait, where is that? First Blood? <laughs> um, I mean, Flesh and Blood? Not First Blood. Um, uh, where's that one? That I mean, he was in Buffy. Think about how much fun he had doing Buffy. You know, um, oh, yeah. that was a fun role. That His next role is a lot like that. Mm-hmm. They didn't use him um, enough, Buffy. Oh, no, no. They didn't use him even nearly enough. No. Yeah. Uh, you never even talked but, about Argento's um, Argento's um, ugh, I can't say it Dracula, which was um, there's a reason why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally different type of film. And then uh, um, uh, like the movie I just didn't like this movie Valerian, but Rutger Hauer's in it, and his oh, scenes like are just. I mean, it's not yeah. a great movie, but I, I thought it was fun. Oh, my God. You won't watch Lex, but you'll like the Valerian. Sure. <laughs> well. Circle that around your brain, people. <laughs> well, you know what? You like Lex and not Valerian. Circle that around your brain. <laughs> yeah, but I'm with a lot of people. Valerian was Valerian a horrible pop world that almost nobody saw Saw, and most Luke Besson fans even called it a piece of crap. Yeah, yeah but you know, was, I saw it. And I thought, I, it's disjointed. It's not perfect. It's not great. I still had a blast. I had a blast. It was a perfect movie to put on and just sit and watch for two two hours and fifteen minutes and leave your brain outside. Nothing wrong. Oh, with really? I got a movie and it lasts two hours and forty two minutes. But that's where after you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Absolutely. Well, you guys are going to be focusing on that. So well, I, right. I, so I, we go. I want this to go around. And why did you love Rutger Hauer as an actor, Carl? To wrap this all up in a nice right. little bowl. Well, the, the, the thing about Rutger was there's just this. Power, you know, I just mentioned very briefly Hobo with a Shotgun, which I do not consider a, a good film. But there is this scene in the middle of it that is a gem, and he's just talking to these babies that have been born, and he, he's warning them about life and what it's like. And and it's just that power that he has that he can take a role, no matter what the movie is, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, and make you watch him. And make you really, really connect with him, and that's why it was good, and and one of a kind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, one of a kind. That's uh, you know when we do these tributes to an actor or celebrity that passes away, an entertainer that passes away, it's usually because of that. They're a one of a kind. 
they take their humanness and they wrap it into a character and they show us something that nobody else could ever do. And mm-hmm. within that, they also show us who they are. And even even in a show like Lex, which is pretty out there, and the the Bog character he played was really insane, you can still see Rutger along with the character. Okay? You it's still that magnificent presence. And that, I, there's no one movie, I guess, other than Blade Runner, I'd say, or Hitcher, actually, Blind Fury. Um, go see that if you want to know what who Rutger Hauer was. Um, watch all his stuff, or a lot of his stuff, then you're going to be in awe of his presence. That's mm-hmm. just in awe see, of his presence. The other thing I would add to what you just said is he not only shows himself, he reflects and we see ourselves in him. Especially, and of course, that whole thing with, with uh, Blade Runner. I yeah. mean, who does not watch that, not just in awe, but understand everything and feel the same thing that he does? And right. It's, it's, it's incredible. Right, I agree. Even? To me, it's, it's you have to look at his best work. You'll always see that gleam in his eyes, like he's having fun and he wants you to come with him, and you're like, oh, shit, I'm going, I'm coming. Yeah. Right. Right. No matter what it is, he does. He has that, that gleam in his eye, like, come on for a ride. Give me two hours, you know? Come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's. That's truly what I'm going to miss. Yeah. Him. Mm-hmm. And before we see over, and thank you for being on, Carl. Right, Vicky? Right. Thank you, Carl. Well, originally we were going to do this show before you even asked us to do your show. And so mm-hmm. we already had planned this, Stephen and I, a, a Rutger Hauer show. But with if the three of us planning, doing it together. Vicky, uh, Grabbing me by the throat and slamming me on the wall and just saying when. <laughs> really? Because I wanted to do it last week. <laughs> I'm like, when are we going to do this? When are we? Gonna we wouldn't have been this? able to do it either, Ricky, on the day that right. you wanted. Because... I know. I know. Yeah. That well, that awesome. that happens. I'm just glad we're able to do it now. Yeah. And what do you have planned for your Friday show, Carl? Uh, actually, what we're going to be doing on DLN, I put out a a, a little um, bit of a feeler, and we're going to be talking about movie soundtracks, particularly underknown ones, and ones that aren't as well known. And uh, I've got no. Well, I, one for me, one for me would be Tempest by Stomu Yamashita. Uh, another one would be The Manchurian Candidate by David Amram. And for okay. me, put in The Swimmer. Okay, cool. Cool. So, so you know, no John Williams, no, you know, 
we, we want to do things of we're talking specifically orchestral scores or instrumental scores, not you know compilations like rock and roll compilations. Uh, so yeah, so, yeah even, that's, that's kind of a misnomer there because even when there's a, a like what Tarantino does, what we're going to talk about, take all that music from the six and mix it in there's always a, a score with it yeah yeah is, but, but i'm talking primarily uh uh the score you know maybe one or two songs is fine if we're talking but, 1969 vicky the best example of what carl's saying is compared the easy rider soundtrack to the yeah. wild bunch soundtrack oh yeah okay i got it right carl mm-hmm Right, Which exactly. Wild Bunch soundtrack is out there. Great. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I just Absolutely. watched that not too long ago. Again, look, I've watched it all my life. I just watched it again. Uh, all right. So so you guys are going to talk about uh, 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 Once, Upon Once Upon a, a time, time in Hollywood, right? In Hollywood, yes. Tarantino's new yeah. film that is just sweeping the box office. Forget the Lion King. That piece of crap. That Disney. <laughs> we'll get into it, but I've seen it before. Back in 1992, 93. Yes. And it was good. <laughs> yep. So, yes. so anyway, you're, you're going to be talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, and right. you're going to be talking about spoilers, right? Right. We're going to Well, um, you know what? Yeah, we're how dare spoil you talk about Yeah, how we're dare gonna... you spoil the movie? I haven't seen it yet, so I got to go, all right? Right, right. So see right. You later, Okay, Padre. okay. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Yes, and anyone else who uh has not seen this film, we're going to continue for the next uh 45 minutes or so. And talk about this film, um, well, as long as we can talk about it. Um, we're going to talk about the things we love about this film. So it's all spoilers. So if you haven't yeah. seen this film yet, you need to turn us off and come back to the same show after you see the film. Then you can hear us talk, and then you can talk to yourself and us, but we won't be there. <laughs> But you can uh, enjoy the film with us again, okay? Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, this is all spoilers coming up. To for, give you time to leave before this and to give us a little time to come down and talk about Rutger, here is a little break. We'll see you in 2 minutes and 20 seconds.
and we're back. And didn't that just set the mood to talk about the movies? Vicky? Oh yeah, I was up, I was up dancing a little bit. That was uh, really, really perfect, perfect lead-in for a movie set in 1969 Hollywood. And I knew I was going to like this movie. The trailers I had seen, the cast. Uh, I like Quentin Tarantino movies. Um, but I didn't know that I was going to love this movie. But Steven, Steven here, he's been talking about this movie for what, six weeks? When did you get the yeah, soundtrack? About a month. Yeah, this is a what month? I get the finale of Rick Dalton month. Yeah. Or is it Rick fucking Dalton? Rick fucking Dalton. <laughs> yeah, get those hippies out of my driveway, fuckers. Yeah, get the hell get out on goddamn fucking hippies on a private drive here. <laughs> I'm sorry, um, ladies and gentlemen, my friends and all. We are going to be laughing because that movie, there were there's three scenes in that movie that made me laugh so hard. I had tears running down my eyes. I had no makeup left on my eyes. Girls, you know that. Ladies, women. Um, just, oh my gosh, I was just dying. And then there are other, there's just jokes throughout the whole movie. But, oh, so fun. So much fun. Where do you want to start? With the music? Well, the setup of this movie is, this is, it starts in January of 1969, and it follows like strands, leading to the infamous August the 3rd? August the 8th. August the 8th, 1969, which was the night of the Tate-LaBianca murders. And this is not about the murders. This is about 1969 and Hollywood and how everything was starting to change. Right, right. Rick Things Dalton are really is one of those guys that had made it big doing TV westerns, but he tried to do a movie career, and it's sort of tanking, and the only option he has left is to go to Italy and do spaghetti westerns. And him and his stunt double are basically, well, as they say in the movie, they're more than friends and less than wife and husband. Right. I love that scene. Yeah, they're they but they are. They're just they're they're almost joined at the hip. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know I when when Brad Pitt first came out on the scene Years and years ago, the legends of the fall, all my girlfriends are like, oh, my God, you've got to watch that movie. Oh, my God, his name's Brad Pitt. Oh, 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 oh. And I'm like, no, he's just a pretty boy. And for a while, Brad Pitt wasn't a very good actor. The, um, the epitome of his bad acting was um, – they call me Mr. Black. No, what's his name? Mr. Black. Um, he's Meet Joe Black. Devil. Meet Joe Black. That was the worst acting ever. And I don't know what happened, but somebody grabbed a hold of him and said, look, dude, you need to learn how to act. 
And from that point on, he got better and better. And he now, now I guess maybe um, his friendship, he met the right people. And now he's a great actor. I love him. I love him in everything. And this movie, you'll love him too. There's but certain Leo, guys that just kick ass with Tarantino's dialogue and acting style he usually asks for. Yeah. And so far, the big four are uh, Brad Pitt, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Christoph Waltz, and, of course, Samuel Jackson. Of course. Of course. I watched the end of Pulp Fiction after I had come home from um, from seeing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I was just wrapped again. It was the last scene with Tim Roth and uh, Amanda Plummer. I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm so privileged to sit here and see this scene after I just watched that movie. And so, yeah. I got um, to see both Leo, in Knoxville. You don't talk about hearing a whole entire fully packed audience go nuts after Bruce Willis <laughs> says, yeah, next time I see you, we're going to be in Knoxville, Tennessee. The whole audience is just, oh, yeah, motherfucker, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read this uh, reviewer who liked the movie and everything, but calls um, Quentin um, arrested in his young adult years. And I just don't think that this guy sitting up on his high horse really knows America. Because Quentin Tarantino, I think, knows America and knows what entertains us and also what gets us going. And yeah, his movies show it. Yeah. There's no way a guy who's arrested in his youth could make a movie about growing old like Once Upon a Time in the Hollywood. Age. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, what's really crazy is, is how Leo, well, he's just the best actor. He, uh, You know how Brad Pitt had to grow into his acting? Leo DeCrat. Caprio, sorry, I'm just going to call him Leo for right now. Um, You know, we've seen him since he was a child, and he had it back then, and he's never lost it. He's just a damn good actor. That's all there is to it. He just knows how to own a part. And, And this whole fading actor thing when when he he gets that look in his eye and his brain is going like oh yeah i am the fading actor do you freaking believe it and then when he starts crying yeah. oh my god oh yeah. come on man don't cry in front of the mexicans <laughs> yes and you um, know what performance none of them are talking about and even those that complain about how he treats women in film, mm-hmm. that little girl, she is amazing in her scenes. She is. She is definitely an amazing child. I, she can't be eight. I don't know. I haven't even looked her up. But she can't be eight. She says she's eight, but she seems like she's ten. No. <laughs> she seems like she's 21. <laughs> Yeah, I love how she teaches Leonardo DiCaprio, Rick Dalton, what he forgot about being a real actor. Right, right, right. He, um, she's just, 
she's sitting there reading a book. That's another thing. I love you, Quentin. I love you, love you for showing all those people reading books. Everyone's reading a book instead of with their goddamn phone in their hand. Yeah. They're reading books. Everyone's literate. Everybody wants to know what story. What are you reading? What are you reading? Everyone's reading. Instead of what video are you watching? Are you on YouTube? Did you just see him smash kittens or what? Oh, God. Anyway. Yeah, that but yeah, girl. that's I'm the thing to... it captures the best is that that the whole vibe of 1969. A lot of people have been complaining about the scenes of Brad Pitt driving around L.A., but I love those scenes. How could anyone? Okay, this is the thing. If you're complaining about Brad Pitt in the Cadillac <laughs> driving around. L.A., then you are not from California. You're not from the West at all. You don't know what it's like to get in your car with the windows down and the radio blasting. And so, sorry, you just haven't lived yet because I'm telling you that that is the way we live out here. That's the way I was raised. And that Cadillac, my daddy owned a Cadillac just like that. And so whoever is complaining, they must live in, I don't know, Philippines or something. I don't know Philippines. Stuff. Back when it got to be too expensive just to get in your car and go out and drive around. Right. So Back then, all we needed that, was couch change. Right, because <laughs> it was 19 cents a gallon <laughs> or less. Yeah. But, yeah, I can't see how could anybody really complain about that. Most people, I don't think, get that L.A. is a character in the movie. Right. Well, L.A. is actually a character in many movies. That's something that I don't think people really understand when they're watching Um something set in Hollywood that LA is, is is actually its own entity I mean when it's set in New York people understand that but when it's in LA they just think oh the west oh LA Hollywood actors but no this is a love letter from Quentin Tarantino to LA and not LA of the 20 teens of 2019. No, 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 no. L.A., the way it was when he was growing up. L.A., the way it was when I was growing up. Yeah. And the soundtrack, to, just to get to that, God, it was one of those things we would call perfect cruising soundtrack. Yeah. And if you haven't heard it yet, it doesn't play like his usual stuff with song dialogue bit. No, it has radio bumpers from actual KHLA radio. Right. It even has commercials. So it sounds like and plays like you're listening to that radio station. Right, because it plays some of the commercials. Oh, did you stay to the end? Just thinking about commercials, did you stay to the end and see the commercial that... um, that Leo does at the end Goddamn about with the cigarettes. cigarettes. They taste like shit. 
<laughs> what the hell do you use this hot dang thing for? Gave me a double chin. Makes me look fat. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Apple cigarettes. The best tasting cigarettes in the world. I don't know what he was saying. He was just going on and on about Apple cigarettes. Okay, Red that's something. When you go, yeah. Yes. <laughs> cut. Perfect. Who got this thing here? And he's, he's like strangling himself, only it's a cardboard cutout. <laughs> that was perfect. You know, that was yeah. just a stab at Marvel, at the Marvel movies, you know? <laughs> well, Ann, have too. you ever heard the infamous uh, outtakes from the Orson Welles commercial for uh, Frozen Peas? No, I have never. Oh, uh-uh. God. I have to get that to you. It's hilarious. He's sitting oh, there, and he's complaining about a line, and he says it. He says, if anybody can tell me the logic of this line, I'll fucking blow you. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because the peas have some kind of fresh scent or something? No, it was just some stupid line. It's like, people go out in the California sun to enjoy and harvest these peas. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a Mexican joke right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, the Mexican jokes didn't offend me. I mean, there was, I have never seen anyone who's a real Mexican get offended at what they consider offensive stuff. We don't give a shit about well, uh, go, go ahead. Uh, Speedy Gonzalez or Slowpoke Rodriguez or the fucking Frito Bandito. We don't give a shit. We laugh at it. Well, some people do because in my theater, and remember, I live in Fresno, California, and we are uh, 65% Hispanic. <laughs> um, the, a couple... They were older, Mexican couple, Hispanic couple, sorry, um, walked out. Um, Brad Pitt, Pitt, I think it was Brad Pitt, said something about the beaners. It was like the third time somebody had called a Mexican a beaner. Because back in the 60s and 70s, that was the racist slang. And so, of course, Quentin is going to be using it in, in his movie. Whoa, those two got up and left. And, I, I mean, they made smoke as they were getting out of that theater. And they were old. They needed wheelchairs. <laughs> but, I mean, I can't believe that they were at that. I mean, what were they even doing in the movie theater in a Quentin Tarantino movie? And, and they got offended. Who were those people? <laughs> I don't know. Hell, everybody, there were about 10 or 12 Mexicans in the theater along with me when Pulp Fiction came out and we were watching it. And then Tim Ross came out and said, all Mexicans out of the kitchen. <laughs> Every Mexican in the theater laughed. And one of them yelled, that's the only one working in those kitchens. <laughs> and yes, it turned out every Mexican, everyone in the kitchen was a Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> that's not racist. That's just real, damn it. Yeah. 
I'm going to tell you, you know, I'm not going to go to a Mexican food restaurant that I look in the back and I see that the chef is white. If he's white, I'm leaving. Okay? <laughs> That's just the way it yeah. is. <laughs> you know, if I go to I an Italian restaurant. Uh, on that night, both of them went to, as uh, Kurt Russell called him, world famous Mexican restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> Kurt Russell was just perfect in his role. Just perfect. Oh my God. Um, I was the guy he hired to play Bruce Lee. He was great. I wish they'd shown more of him. Oh my God. That's the scene that I couldn't stop laughing. I could not. My I had tears just rolling. I had to force myself to get back under control because the jokes were just coming one after the other after the other after the other and as Brad Pitt is just beating the shit out of Bruce Lee (laughs) and he's doing you know what was great was that oh Born 
in 2009, so she's actually 10, which I thought she was, but she plays eight. And she is a precocious child. <laughs> what are you reading? <laughs> and then what does he call her? Um, sweet little buttercup? No. What does he call yeah. her? I think yeah, he does. He calls her and, buttercup. And she goes, yeah, I don't she, like anyone calling me that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, that was perfect. It was it's so perfect. Okay. Yeah, she's well, you know, really represent the feminist feminism moving in. Right, right, and the child actors because as the seventies, you know, there was there the the morning shows were starting to use more child actors by the end of the seventies. The child actors were in the sitcoms, and they were drawing a lot of people. By the 80s, it was the the child actors who were drawing in the ratings and the, the audiences for television. And so it was the birth of the child actor along with the, um, the feminism that was yeah. trying to worm its way in. Still wasn't though. Sixty nine. Didn't you know that every one of the people who smoked in the movies had that coffer smokers hack that we were just yeah. used to back then? Right. Where they were coughing up that bit of phlegm. <laughs> <laughs> that was know, everybody who smoked at... back then, people. Yes. You know, if you are not old like we are, especially me. <laughs> And you don't know what it's like to be around a, a smoker. Oh, my gosh, they hack it and hack it and hack it. And they can't help it because that's what cigarette smoking does to you. It lines your, your breathing apparatus with um, phlegm and tar. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, DiCaprio, he doesn't smoke. And um, so watching him smoke, in this movie and then watching him hack I was wondering uh his red eyes how much did they have to put the the burning solution in his eyes and how much was real from actually smoking the cigarette (laughs) and he was an alcoholic back when social drinking was cool oh right right that was one of the best moments in the film when he's yelling in the mirror you drunk four Goddamn whiskey sours last night. You could have stopped with two, but you drunk four. And you don't even fucking like whiskey sours. (laughs) (laughs) And if you fuck this up one more time, I'm going to shoot your brains out. Leave them all over the pool. (laughs) (laughs) If that's not foreshadowing, oh my God. <laughs> oh yeah, and a plus, and the scene at the first in the movie, uh, where it shows him burning up all of the Nazis and then talking oh, about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I got it. Yeah, <laughs> I got that. Still got that fame for. And by the end, this is big spoilers. Okay, yeah, we're going into spoilers. some real spoilers about the last third of the movie. The first two thirds of the movie is really set up. It's and hilarious set up. Set up yeah. like up. 
I can't believe so well and set And for those up. who complained about Roby not having enough uh, words, well, Sharon Tate's sister, the only one of her family she had that, that's still around, was crying after the film saying, I got my sister back at least for two hours. She said that was spot on how Sharon it was. Right. You know, Sharon was not a mental giant. Nor was she, you know, some great actress who was going to win, um, you know, the next Academy Award for Best Actress. And look at she was just happy, as she's portrayed, to be in the audience listening to other people being entertained and laughing at what she had done. Oh, and so, that was one of my favorite scenes in the movie, is just that look on her face. She's soaking in, everyone just enjoying what she's doing. Right. Right. It was endearing. It was totally, you know, because this is another thing. Um, Quentin Tarantino gave us a love letter to um, Sharon Tate also, because all we know, most of us, is that that poor woman was stabbed to death at, at eight and a half months pregnant. That's all we know, mostly, right? And yeah. and so this was I I loved it. She was wearing yellow. She had yellow dresses on. She had those cute little yellow shorts on. And she was singing all the time and dancing and smiling. She drove that nice little Porsche. And she she was loving life. And at that moment in Sharon Tate's life, that's exactly what she should have been doing. And I think and- it was great that we saw it. Yeah. Like that. And, yes, Paul Revere and the Raiders were that big in 1969. Yes, they were. I saw them. I I was next to the stage. Um, my I have a family, part of my family used to own rides and concessions for um, the fair circuit. And in Arizona, in Phoenix, uh, the state fair is held there. And my family from Missouri, who owned all of this, they were ranchers. They had cattle. They had rides. They had concessions. They did all this stuff. So they would come to the Arizona State Fair, and I got to see anyone who was performing at the fair on the stage in the Coliseum. And one of those was uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders, and it was fucking fantastic. Fantastic. They were huge back then. Huge. And they were cute. And they wore those outfits. So, yeah. And there's yeah, no bad Paul song Rebus. on the soundtrack. It just all <laughs> puts you into that mood. That's right. And the 1969 music vibe was really good. I still listen to some of... I still listen to Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> you know, and he yeah. died back then. <laughs> Sorry. And there's really something cathartic about seeing uh, Brad Pitt's character kick the living shit out of Clem. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's well, one thing. We're going to get into the spoiler part. Yeah, this movie is about catharsis. Because there's something yes, cathartic after all these years of being afraid of Manson and his family as the boogeyman. To see someone just beat the living shit out of him. Right. Right. In fact, that's what that that whole thing, when I finally realized, I mean, I knew what was going to happen way back in like the first third of the movie. I'm like, oh, this is all setting up for that night. 
but I didn't know what Tarantino had in mind, right? And so yeah. inside, you're afraid. You're like, oh, God, I know exactly what's going to happen in Sharon Tate's house. And so the thing is, is that you don't know how Tarantino. And then when you realize that it's a fairy tale, then this is, becomes cathartic because this yeah. is what should have happened to those pricks. Those fucking yeah. hippies, those motherfucking hippie drug out. <laughs> Dirty fucking hippies. <laughs> they say that a lot in the movie. So if you think you're hippie or you like hippies, you're going to be mad because <laughs> there's no love for a hippie in this movie. Dirty Not one bit hippies. of love for hippies. And, you know, this is so funny because, you know, the Mexican couple walked out because they were offended by the beaner jokes, but there were only maybe four or five at the most Mexican yeah. jokes. The whole movie has, what, hippie jokes and how much people looked down on the hippies and how much they hated the hippies for a yeah. reason. I the mean, hippies didn't do anything, love, peace, and whatever. I don't. The hippies didn't do anything. They got themselves... Um, Drugged up and dead, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, yeah. Jim Morrison, um, just to name a few famous ones. Um, and so the hippie jokes are just, just funny. But you know what's really funny is Brad Pitt being just tripping on acid yeah. while he does that that. Final scene. Yeah, during the last oh third God. of the movie, he buys a acid dipped acid lace soaked cigarette. So during right. him and uh, Rick's last night together, he just gets stoned and high, and is uh, taking his dog for a walk and feeding. Oh, speaking of, I'm sorry, Margaret Robbie, you're great in the movie, but you're not <laughs> the best actress in the movie. <laughs> It's Brandy. She's the best. <laughs> she is. I mean, I love that during the last scene when they all break in. Lance and yeah. break in the Rick's house. And Brandy's just yeah. looking at him, them and Brad like, hey, can I kill him yet? <laughs> she, and she's so quiet and just like a like a statue, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it's just perfect. And but we know as the audience, we know what that dog is capable of because we've seen the scene in the trailer where the dog does exactly to the T what Cliff asked asked the dog to do, right? Yeah. And so that dog that dog is perfect. <laughs> And what happens in Tarantino's universe is Clem and the and Clem, let's see, Tex, Sadie, and uh, Leslie make a wrong turn. Right. And they end up in a Tarantino movie, a.k.a. <laughs> <laughs> Rick Dalton's house. And the first time yes. they show up, he's like, get the fuck out of you say, Get the fuck out of my lawn, you damn dirty hippie. You're just here to get stoned in the driveway. Get that piece <laughs> of smoking shit off my property. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. 
It's so good, but it's so funny. And then they decide, and then that one that loves them in the what loved the FBI is like, hey, I've seen them on TV. Let's go kill them too. And then they get right. out of the car, and then the ride ditches them. <laughs> right. She's like, I left my knife in the car. And he goes, I left uh, like, the car. Here's the keys. Go. <laughs> what the fuck? She left us. It turns them from devils into punchlines. <laughs> yeah, from that moment on, you know, because I knew something squirrely was going to happen from that moment on, but my heart was still racing because we all know what happened. Um, especially those of us of a certain age. Um, yeah. And so, so okay, the car never left. There were actually four that went into the house, all that stuff. So now there's three, and they have no car. So what the heck? This is starting to be a little different. And that's, that's when it all went there. Oh, it's all so great. Yeah, Brad Pitt, Homet, Canada, who. Who the hell are you? I know you. What the hell is your freaking, what the hell is your fucking name? I've seen you on the ranch. I'm yes, the devil. I thought you... I'm here to do the devil's work. No, no, no. Your name wasn't that fucking stupid. <laughs> then he said, wait, before I say anything else, you guys are real, aren't you? Uh, yeah? I've got... Okay. Crack. Here comes the can. can Dog food and then whistle, arms, nuts. (laughs) I know, and that was that close-up where where Brandy goes for his nuts, right? He goes, ah, clap. (laughs) Yeah, but you know what I really, because, you know, they all live. And they spun yeah. off taxpayer money until the, well, some of them are still alive. Manson is dead, thank God. And his, the last two years of his life, he suffered not near as much as he should have. Um, but my taxes paid for him to live a long life. And so to see those fuckers get their faces bashed in, totally bashed in, that fireplace scene... That was like oh God, was yeah. gruesome and over the top. But you know what? I kept thinking, that bitch deserves it. Smack her again. Yeah, Smack that's her right. into that. My theater, when they were getting their asses handed to them in such a nasty way, they were like, yeah, woo, fuck yeah, kick them motherfuckers, you know. Kill them, kill them, kill them. <laughs> <laughs> well, my theater wasn't quite that. Um, rambunctious, but I was laughing. I couldn't help it. I was laughing. I, I guess it's that cathartic laugh where, yes, yes, they're getting exactly what they deserve. Yes, yeah. yes. I feel so good. Um, and then it had Brandy's of- best punchline. When she ran to the bedroom, called on the door, and then Rick's wife looked out, and they just both ran in there and closed the door. <laughs> And then it gets more over the top. 
oh, this was so good because, okay, she's already really hurt. This is the one she's who blind. Smashed. Her head is split open. Yeah. <laughs> yes. She's blinded. And she gets her way outside, and she falls into the pool, but she's not going to drown because she's in the shallow end. Too bad for her. <laughs> and yeah, Rick she's had his stabbing in the air. Yes. And he had his, his headphones on, and, and he's like, what the fuck? What the and fuck? then he just walks into the shed, and you're like, what the fuck? What the hell is he doing? Where's he I, going? And I then you hear the Shaw so Brothers. Dun, dun, dun. And then you look and you're like, oh, my God, the fucking flamethrower. <laughs> you did not see that coming. You did not see that coming. It was so great. Yeah. Brad Pitt's famous last line. What the hell are they saying? I don't know some goddamn devil shit. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That whole wrap up with the police and the ENTs there. <laughs> and Brad so finally high. gets to meet his next door neighbors. Which was it was so that last scene was so nice. Have you ever seen and, a Quentin Tarantino and how movie and like that? Song that they pick. Oh yeah, yeah. Because we all know what happened. So yeah. the heck? We just lost Vicky. Well, hopefully she'll, she'll call back right in. I don't know what the heck just happened. But yeah, the song they play at the end is uh, Lily Langtree's uh, the song of Lily Langtree from uh, Judge Roy Breen. There she is. I don't know what happened. Huh. But the I, song they play at the end is Lily Langtree's theme from uh, uh, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. It's so wistful and melancholy. Yes. Cause he, he because he knows and we know in our hearts this is the way we wished it would have ended. Right. Every single one of us. Everyone in the movie theater, every one of us, we wanted to see that happen. We wished we could go back in time. And it was, thank you, Quentin, for giving us this. That's what I kept thinking. Yeah. Thank you, Quentin. I don't know how you thought of this. mature work. Oh, Definitely. Definitely. Like I like I was saying before I got cut off, um, when was the last time you ever saw a Quentin Tarantino movie end like that? With a happy ending? Yeah. Yeah. It was so pleasant. They were, you know, um, 
uh, not Cliff, um, Leo's character. He was just so nice, and Sharon was so nice to him. Come in. Oh, come in. I've been wanting to meet you, you know, time. Come in. This is my friend, and this is, you know, and it was yeah. just. And and he was so polite to them, and she's like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, thank you for asking. You know, Dirty. and it was just nice. If you listen close, that was the last hippie joke. Yeah, I'm all right. Some crazy-ass, dirty-ass hippies come on my property, <laughs> and I had to take care of them. <laughs> so do you think that Brad Pitt died? Bad Pitt's character died from his injuries at the end of the movie. I hope not. In my my fairy tale, no, he did not. They, they left it open so that you could interpret it the way you want to. Yeah. And so, no, and I think that question. he. What? Do you think he killed his wife? Yes, that fucking bitch. I would have killed her too. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god And blamed it on a rogue wave You know I was sitting here I was getting my little fishing stuff ready You know and she was just standing right there And a rogue wave came And hit it And the the um the, Whatever that fishing gun thing is called it came just, out and boop. Yep And she just fell over And that was it Couldn't get her <laughs> Did you hear what she said to him Wait, wait, here's the yeah. question. Did you, I know she was so mean. But here's the question. Was that anything about the Christopher Walken um, night on the boat with, um, um, what's her name? Dang it. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, that could be like the. The, the Natalie Wood death where uh, Robert Wagner thing. supposedly killed her. Because, look at Robert Wagner had a hard time working after that, right? I mean, yeah. seriously, he was a big star. Heart to heart, come on. That was a huge show. And he just couldn't get work. And so I was thinking that... Natalie Wood and he, you know, it was said they were fighting. They were arguing really badly, and somehow she died. So I was thinking that that little boat scene, because it has no ending, we didn't get to see anything. It's left up to our imaginations that that was kind of a reference to the night on Natalie Wood's boat. Yeah. And everybody, well, to sum it up on me, you need to go watch this. It's just great. It's fun. Oh, it's fun. Fun, fun, fun. If you are on my Facebook page, you see that I have changed my avatar to the poster and my my little page top up there. Um, oh, that poster's to, great. Yeah, and the uh, to Brad Pitt and... And Leo DiCaprio um, sitting in one of those very 70s booths. You know, the we never even talked about the ambiance of this thing. Neon lights and the, the, the fake leather booths with the big, um, 
rivets in them and yeah, and the, the sunglasses, the, the big big sixty late sixty sunglasses. Right, and the sideburns, and just everyone wore colors. Um, yeah, just, everything was just perfect for then. Yes, yes. The ambiance was just magnificent. Layers and layers and layers of it. And so, yeah, I think that everyone should see this movie. And I'm going to buy the DVD when it comes out, guaranteed. And the only problem I have with it is what the theater's doing is that they made a two-hour and 41-minute movie into three hours. Just because they got to show a whole bunch of bullshit trailers and commercials oh. before the movie. Oh my God! No kidding! I could not believe how ma- the Mister Rogers trailer got me all choked up. I've seen it before, but seeing it on the big screen, I got all choked up. I'm like, oh shit! But there were must have been fifteen previews. Fifteen. You're just sitting there going, "What? Seeing all my popcorn now." <laughs> Like, now, do you know how crazy. long the movie is? <laughs> I, you, know. you know, I the the movie was what two hours and fifteen minutes, twenty, forty one, forty one. Okay, um, yeah, and so they made it three hours with all those previews. Oh my, uh, unbelievable! And Vicky Griffin, when I was a kid. If it was a 90-minute to 80-minute short movie, you would get more trailers than if the movie was over two hours long. Right. Right. And so, yeah. I'm sad. I didn't more... get to see it on 35 millimeter like some of you bastards did. <laughs> And the Cinerama is playing it as as 70 millimeter, damn it. Wow. And you can tell Santino loves that place because it's in the movie about two or three times, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can tell the places that he really loves because every – I started counting. I can't wait till I have my own DVD. Because the things that he really loves, he shows three times. They pop up three times, three times, three times. So every third in the movie, in every there, it's a three-act play, and in every act, it shows up. Well, not one thing, and it's the poster to Three in the Attic. Oh, yeah. Because why? Tell him. Because it's got three in it already, I guess. Look. <laughs> I just laughed when they showed it. It was a mixture of the fake posters and real posters. Right. Well, sometimes you can't get the real thing. Well, no, the fake posters are all the ones for Rick Dalton's movies. Oh. Yeah, and those scenes, those scenes where they put him into movies with other actors was so great. Yeah, great escape. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my God, we forgot. Damon Lewis plays Steve McQueen. Uh, 
I think that Damon Lewis is one of the great actors of our time. I love him. I'll watch him in anything. And uh, um, he he played the hell out of Steve McQueen. I was I was really happy and sad that he wasn't in more scenes. But you know that's the way the movie. Don't goes. forget Timothy Oliphant. He was great too. Oh yeah, they were all great. Everyone. Oh, you know what's funny? Uh, you know that series about the FBI guys that profile uh, serial killers? Yeah. The guy who played Charles Manson in this upcoming season of Mindhunter uh-huh. is going to be the same guy who played him in one really? time in Hollywood. <laughs> That's good because he looks scary like Manson. <laughs> Yeah, he was That's only awesome. in the movie for maybe like 30 or 60 seconds screen time. Right. And he doesn't even have right. a single world of dialogue. No, but he has that look. He has that freaking yeah. Charles Vinson look. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was fantastic. Well, that's gonna. That's a good thing. Mindhunter is a good show. That's a yeah. good show. Oh, and you know and what? That's, I turned to my mom and said, you know what? It must be Sunday night if they're watching the FBI because we used to watch it too. And I used to, the reason why I remember so well is that we would be watching the FBI, the beginning of it. And I'm like, oh my God, after this is over, I have to go to bed and tomorrow is school. Oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that cracked me up. That uh, uh, Squeaky was an addict to the FBI. (laughs) I know. And then, hey, Bruce Dern, his last role. There he is, sleeping in bed. (laughs) That was supposed to be Burt Reynolds, but Burt Reynolds died before he could film it. Too bad. And I do love Bruce Dern's line. He said, oh, she likes to watch the FBI with me. You mean the red girl out there? Were you not listening when I told you that I'm fucking blind? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, it's two hours already. I know. We have to go. Yeah. Thank you for being on. Well, thank you for hosting this show, Vicki. Oh, you're welcome. It's not my regular show, but, man, we had fun. And it was great that um, we could actually talk a whole hour about Rutger Hauer, who is, you know, he's going to be missed. Because even though he was only doing small parts the last couple of years, he's still, every time he's in a scene, he's great. He steals it. You can't watch anything but him. So I'm glad we had this chance. And that Carl was there to help us. Yeah, and I will get you... uh, the shortened version of the interview without this show attached to it, so you can listen to it of uh, Gary Sherman talking about him on the set. I would love to. I'd love to hear that. Okay. And, and uh, I hope that no, this didn't spoil anybody. And I hope you know. Um, I hope you all went to the movie and saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and were laughing right along with us as we were describing our favorite stuff in the movie. So, I think that's it, Stephen. Okay. And good night, and here is our 
my interview with Gary Sherman. Thank you all very much. And go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood this weekend. Before or after you see before or after you see Hobbs and Shaw. Watch either one of those. Just don't see the Lion King, damn it. Please don't. Lock Radio. Hello, everybody. Right now we have with us is uh, Gary Sherman, who directed uh, Rutger Hauer, who sadly passed away last week and uh, wanted Dead or Alive. Uh, Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Stephen. How are you doing? All right. Was he already attached to the project when you signed on to it, wanted Dead or Alive? No, we um, there was a few people who were uh, up for the project at the time, and um, uh, one of whom actually was Mel Gibson. And uh, you know, at studios, um, <laughs> everybody has an opinion, and uh, the studio liked Rutger. I liked Rutger, um, and Rutger was a lot less money than uh, than Mel Gibson, and that's how it ended up happening. I was quite happy, though. I mean, I've, I've always been a big fan. You know, Soldier of Orange was a film that had really blown me away, and uh, I was quite happy to, uh, to work with Rutger, and he was amazing. He was amazing to work with, and I... I I was very sad yesterday, and I'm still sad. It's uh, uh, it's been a couple of months of uh, last month. Uh, Brian Taggart, who wrote, who co-wrote "Wanted Dead or Alive" with me, passed away. So it's um, it's not been a happy summer for "Wanted Dead or Alive." Yeah. To me, it's sad how forgotten his uh, earliest films are nowadays, like uh, the Verhoeven films, uh, Turkish Delight, Spatters, Soldier of Orange. Yeah, and he he was an amazing actor. You know, I was sitting with some people and talking last night, and um, and Arthur Sarkisian, who uh, was who produced Wanted Dead or Alive called me yesterday and we were just reminiscing and I I don't think any actor has ever challenged me uh, the way that Rutger did he he demanded perfection of himself and he demanded perfection of everyone around him which was absolutely fantastic and he uh, he just he he was just amazing Um, he he stretched himself very far and wanted dead or alive. It was a very different character for Rutger. And he he had to express emotions that um, he wasn't used to, to expressing. Yeah. And most uh, people don't know that Wanted uh, Dead or Alive was a TV adapt- show adaption. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the the original Wanted Dead or Alive was a TV show with Steve McQueen before he became a movie star. And um, Arthur, uh, along with, with 
some other people acquired the rights to the television series and decided to uh, do it as uh, with New World to do it as a movie. And um, uh, they they had a script written um, initially, and the script was absolutely dreadful. <laughs> uh, and um, so in a panic, I, I got a telephone call from from uh, uh, from from the studio saying, God, we need your help. You got to come in. You got to read this script. So Bob Ramey, who was president of the studio at the time, I met with him and uh, he hands me the script and I take the script home and I read the script and he says, what can you do to fix the script? And I said, throw it away and start over again. I said, it doesn't really have any relationship to, to Wanted Dead or Alive. And I mean, we we did a page one, not rewrite. We just started from scratch and it didn't have a lot of time to do it. And, um, uh, Denise Denovi, uh, who went on to, you know, produce Batman and boom, boom. at the time she was an executive at the studio. And she said to me, Oh, let me introduce you to somebody who can help. And it was Brian Taggart. And she introduced Brian and, and myself together and uh, Wanted Dead or Alive ended up to be the first screenplay that Brian and I co-wrote and then um, we went on to do a lot more. But anyways, uh, you know, the, the character Nick Randall, I mean, we, it, uh, it was a pretty well-molded character and uh, getting Rut- Rutger, neither Brian and I were unhappy at all to have Rutger play the part. So, and from the very beginning, from the first time I met Rutger, we just really got into it and started working on it. And uh, it was it was just amazing working with him. There are two moments <laughs> that uh, that I will never forget working on the film. And one was that if you've seen the film, there's a scene in which uh, Rutger and, and, and Robert Guillaume are in a car after Rutger has just witnessed his best friend and, his, and, and, and the love of his life having been murdered. Um, and uh, in the scene, Rutger's supposed to cry. And, and, and so we're, we're you know, prepping the scene and just, and Rutger grabs me and pulls me over to a corner away from the, away from the set and says, I have a problem. I said, what's that Rutger? And he says, I've never cried in real life. How do you expect me to cry on camera? <laughs> and, and we sat down and spent almost half an hour talking about the whole emotion and and the, the what it takes to to get uh, to get to the point of crying and crying for real <clears throat> and we discussed it and we talked about it and we got into it and sitting there off the set Rutger began to cry and it was just an amazing moment and we 
He got it back there. He says, I'm ready to shoot the scene now. And we got back on, on camera and shot the scene. And and it's an amazing scene. It's a scene I'm very, very proud of. So that was on a serious point. On a funnier point, when we were shooting at the what became the chemical factory in the movie was actually a power plant. And the power plant had four major towers uh, with a, a coal-fired uh, power plant. Um, and uh, the tower that we were supposed to shoot in was supposed to be offline the week that we were shooting in it. Well, what happened was one of the other towers went down. <laughs> and uh, the tower that we were all set up in and pre-lit in and had everything you know going on suddenly went under power. And the noise was absolutely unbelievable. And you could almost not hear each other. And so we basically were shooting scratch track um, so that we could uh, loop, you know, dub in the voices afterwards. Anyhow, we had to shout at each other. Then, because it was running, the power company said, everybody's got to wear hard hats. So everybody except the actors had to wear hard hats all the time while they were inside the thing. Well, you couldn't recognize one person from the other because everybody had these yellow hard hats on. It was just a sea of of yellow hard hats. And so everybody was complaining that they could never find me because I was just blending into the sea of yellow hard hats. So the prop guy made a hard hat with, with... running lights around the top so my hat was lit up with LEDs (laughs) so it was the stupidest looking thing you've ever seen but everybody was really happy so we're we're talking about a scene we're sitting inside ready to do to do a shot and it's a scene where Rutgers you know captures uh, the Gene Simmons character and um and it's a very serious scene. And, and we're, so we're getting into it and talking about the scene and, and running through the scene. And it's this very serious moment we're discussing when suddenly Rutger just launches into a belly laugh, <laughs> followed by Gene. And they're just laughing their heads off. And, and, and Rutger turns to me and says, how do you expect us to talk about a serious scene when you're wearing that stupid hat? <laughs> <laughs> and we just broke up. And it was a setup. <laughs> they had talked about doing that. <laughs> but, um, do do. So, and, uh, do do. And that led up to the famous last line of the movie. Which, um, you know, it's funny. When Brian and I were writing the script and we were just looking for that last moment and uh, can I use four-letter words on your show? Yeah. (laughs) So anyhow, we get, get, you know, we're talking about it and we come up with this and, and we're going back and forth and back and forth and suddenly... I said to Brian, fuck the bonus. He said, what? I said, fuck the bonus. 
I said, he sticks a hand grenade <laughs> in, in Malak al-Rakim's mouth and pulls him out of the out of the building by the ring on the on the hand grenade, and then you know, actually I won't say any more. <laughs> yeah. Spoil it for those who hadn't seen the movie, and and I said, you know, and boom, and pulls the pin and says, "Fuck the bonus," and. <laughs> Doop and uh, <laughs> and Brian jumps out in the two of us screaming. Yeah. What? Where he stops and thinks about it before he says it. Yeah, no, he's sitting there and he plays. He's playing with with the ring all the time while he's talking to the FBI and the CIA guys, and he's mm-hmm. turned them over already. And the <laughs> and the two of us scream and. W- we're jumping up and down, screaming, fuck the bonus. And Arthur's office is down the hall from us. Arthur comes running and says, what's the matter? What's the matter? We t- So we tell Arthur what we came up with and scream, fuck the bonus. And, and Arthur starts screaming, fuck the bonus. And the three of us are <laughs> dancing around the office, screaming, fuck the bonus. <laughs> Anyways, it was it was really great, and Rutger pulled off that line like nobody else could have could have done. Yeah. It was just amazing. So it uh, it was a tough movie to shoot, but it was fun, and he, and he was uh, he was amazing. I mean, that scene where he fires the shotgun into the cabinet with the terrorist inside the cabinet to question mm-hmm. him. I mean, he he just was so intense in that scene. There's all kinds of just great stuff. And he loved riding motorcycles. And, oh, all of the scene at the end with the truck chase and he's driving the semi-trailer, it's Rutger driving. It was not a stunt guy. Rutger loved, Rutger owned a 40-footer that he had turned into a mobile home that he drove all around Europe. And uh, so he... He knew how to drive a 40-footer. So that was actually, um, you know, Rutger driving the 40-foot 18-wheeler. And uh, he he did all his own driving. So, so Well, I can remember uh, reading somewhere on the set of uh, Nighthawks, you know the scene where uh, he has the baby holding a gun to it and there's just alone and... uh, Billy D. Williams just staring at him. Yep. After the take is yep. over, Stallone looks at Billy D. Williams and says, "You know, I've just lost this movie." And Billy just looked at him and said, <laughs> "Yeah, you're right." Yeah, Rutger was amazing. He he was really amazing. I I can't believe he's gone, and uh, and way too young. Um. It's uh, we lost a very important actor, a very important person. Um, he was uh, he was an amazing guy. Yeah. So. And if you like his action films, go see anything that has Rutger Hauer and directed by Paul Verhoeven. Yep. Absolutely. Their 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 early films are great. I mean, Paul's early films are amazing, and uh, and and with Rutger in them, I mean, 
Soldier of Orange should be number one. That that I think was just uh, an incredible film and an incredible performance by Rutger. And so, but just to, and oops, sorry. I hate to say it, but if you want to see Wanted Dead or Alive, try to find it online because the DVD is long, long out of print, and is it still caught up in New World rights issues? Because I no, see it go from like a hundred to hundred and fifty. October first, um, Wanted Dead or Alive will be out in uh, Blu-ray from Kino Lober. Uh, it's oh, a, a complete new new scan, and it is absolutely gorgeous. And there's some great extras on it, including uh, uh, commentary by. Uh, by Arthur Sarkissian and myself, and an interview with me, and a whole bunch of other things. It was announced online yesterday, but before the announcement of Rutgers passing. It was just, yesterday was just, I, I, when I woke up yesterday morning, there was the announcement from Kino Lober, which I knew was coming. And then it was around lunchtime, East Coast time. Yeah, it was that, around uh, uh, 2 o'clock. Because I recorded the show then, and it was like one fifty, boom. I yeah, barely had time to confirm it to real news sources before. I had no idea because, um, you know, Heather Buckley had been who produced the extras for the Kino Lober uh, release of Wanted Dead or Alive was trying to get Rutger to do uh, an interview, and they had scheduled. Uh, two dates with him, both of which ended up getting canceled because he said he wasn't feeling well. And um, but we had no idea that uh, his not feeling well was terminal. But uh, so I'm really sad that that we didn't get to, to do that. Uh, yeah. Uh, to do that interview. I do appreciate the fact that his family didn't uh, make a press release to a week after, so they had time to warn him and bury him before the chaos started. Yeah. Well, he was uh, he was a good guy, and uh, will be very missed. Yeah. So. He and I, he and I spent a lot of time together making that movie during prep, and uh, he liked to cook, and I liked to cook, and we would <laughs> we would cook together, we'd cook meals, and uh, uh, and just talk about everything. He's an extremely bright, well-read, educated man, and uh, he was pretty amazing and very funny. I mean, he was very funny. He, when he was in L.A. doing Wanted Dead or Alive, he befriended uh, um, oh, Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> and so Whoopi used to be around the set quite a bit, and it was quite fun to have her around. <laughs> She's a very funny lady. So, uh, yeah. And he was a very funny guy, and the two of them together were very funny. So it's, um, but 
I'm 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 happy to have had him as a friend. I'm I'm thrilled that I got to direct him. And uh, what can I say? I actually posted online yesterday that his friendship was a gift, and having worked with him was a blessing. And um, boom, miss him. Losing too many friends these days. As uh, as Eugene O'Neill said, getting older. I used to think getting older was was a, was vanity, but now I realize that getting older is learning to deal with losing loved ones. And uh, boom! <laughs> I hate to. End well, on a down note, but uh, no, that's how I feel today. And thank you for being on. And please, people, if you like 80s action and you haven't seen uh, The Wanted Dead or Alive, which comes out of the first of the month, it's a good one. And also Vice Squad, which not only caused Gary Sherman not to get work because it offended the producer so much, it caused Martin Scorsese to get in a fight in the middle of a restaurant. You can't get better than that, can you? <laughs> oh, you know about that? How did, how did yeah, you know I read that, your interview you know? in uh, Shock Cinema where you talked about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, he got into a fight with uh, Don Steele, who was running Paramount at the time. Because Marty said he thought it, it should get Best Picture at the Oscars. <laughs> and and she thought it was a very anti-woman film which it wasn't and actually Dawn changed her mind over the years and offered me a picture that we never actually got to make but uh, <laughs> anyhow um, it, it's uh, it's fun yeah Vice Squad yeah Vice Maybe, Squad comes uh, out on uh, yeah a shout factory. It comes out in the middle of August. Right. Yep, it does. So. And All if right. you go well, online, Blue Underground has the Blu-ray of uh, uh, Dead and Buried for nine bucks, and it's a damn good little movie. And Shout Factory has the rights to uh, Deathline. No, no Deathline is is also Blue Underground. Deathline and and Dead and Buried are both available on uh, on Blue Underground, and both are just amazing. The Deathline Blu-ray, which uh, uh, Blue Underground released last year, um, is actually struck from the original camera negative. We actually found, after a year of searching, found the original camera negative. And did a did a, a a scan from the original negative. It's absolutely what Alex Thompson and I wanted that film to look like. Yeah, I I love that uh, that Blu-ray. So yeah, and Do-do. thank you for uh, being on, Gary, and everybody. Like I said, watch more Gary, of Gary's movies. He's one of the best underrated directors to come out of the 70s and 80s. Well, thank you very much. I love making movies. <laughs> yeah. So. 
And you can tell. Well, thank you. Thank you and very much, Jim, Thank you for being on. We'll talk to you later, Gary. Okay, and may Rutger rest in peace. Yeah. So, take care. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been fun. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to the show, everybody. And rest in peace, Rutger, and go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Goodbye, everybody, and good night.